big are you? Party size. What are you into? I go anywhere. I don't do anything. That's cool. Hips and lips. Hi, I'm Chris. Hi, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. So as we promised last week, we're continuing our conversation of gay horror for Pride Month. And we found ourselves comparing Stranger by the Lake to cruising so much in that episode that we decided that we needed to carry over the conversation and have another full episode devoted to the movie Cruising. Yeah. Stranger by the Lake, of course, takes place in like the late 80s or early 90s. Um, we're guessing based on our sleuthing. And of course, this takes place in 1980 or 1979. So it's around the same 10 year period ish. Yeah. And it's about cruising. Um, uh, one's in France, one's in New York. And there's a lot of interesting parallels, uh, especially with some tropes and uh, and on almost like a non judgmental eye lifestyle of cruisers, whether they're part of the uh, you know, S&M leather subset or any other subset of the gay community mm-hmm. because cruising, I guess, is something that uh, some gay men do uh, regardless of whatever category you might fit them in. Right. And these two particular movies deal with the subject so differently and yet have some amazing similarities between them. And so I think we will probably talk about cruising for a little bit and then draw some similarities and differences between the two films. Yeah. Okay. Cruising is a 1980 erotic crime thriller written and directed by William Friedkin, uh, who also directed movies like The French Connection and Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it stars Al Pacino, Paul Servino, and Karen Allen with bit parts by James Remar and Powers Booth, of all people. <laughs> uh, the music was composed by Jack Nietzsche. Uh, it's loosely based on the novel of the same name by New York Times reporter Gerald Walker about a serial killer targeting gay men, particularly those men associated with the leather scene in the late 1970s. To this day, cruising remains one of the most widely analyzed and debated milestones in the history of LGBT depictions in film. Critics and filmmakers still argue about whether the film constitutes homophobic propaganda or simply a neutral documentary-like depiction of a genuine reality, or both. All right, everyone. This is Cruising. How would you like to disappear? disappear go undercover you know this man who's here i'm here you're here these victims are all the same physical type what about him skip late 20s 140 150 pounds dark hair dark eyes have you ever seen him before i want to send you out there to see if you can attract this guy how where A New York City detective in search of a killer is about to disappear into the night. Is it dangerous? I can't talk about it. How do you know you're going to end up the same person when it's over? An odyssey to the edge of city life. Bartenders are starting to give me some information. There's this uh, name keeps popping up all the time. There he is. The one with the hat. Is that the one that followed you? Yeah. Why didn't you go with him? I don't know. I think you should check him. 
no match. What he sees. Who's here? What he feels. I don't think I can do the job, Captain. I don't think I can handle it. I'm here. There's just stuff going down. I don't think I can... Uh, I can deal with it. What he experiences. Yes! What he discovers will change his life forever. Al Pacino. Who's here? I'm here. You're here. Cruising. In New York City during the middle of a hot summer, body parts of men are showing up in the Hudson River. The police suspect it to be the work of a serial killer who is picking up homosexual men at West Village bars like the Eagle's Nest, the Ramrod, and the Cockpit, then taking them to cheap rooming houses or motels, tying them up, and stabbing them to death. Officer Steve Burns, played by Al Pacino, who resembles the victim's dark-haired, slim profile is sent deep undercover by Captain Edelson, played by Paul Servino, into the urban world of gay S&M and leather bars in the meatpacking district in order to track... I'm sorry. <laughs> Why is that so funny to you? Meatpacking district. <laughs> but it's a place. <laughs> I know, but come on. Anyway, <clears throat> continue. <clears throat> Pack my meat. Burns is at first reluctant to accept the assignment, but he's ambitious and sees a high-profile case as a way to rapidly advance his career. He rents an apartment in the area and befriends a neighbor, Ted Bailey, played by Don Scardino, a struggling young gay playwright who does tech support to pay the bills. Burns' undercover work takes a toll on his relationship with his girlfriend Nancy, played by Karen Allen. Due to both his refusal to tell her the details of his current assignment and his developing friendship with Ted, who himself is having a relationship problem with his jealous and overbearing dancer boyfriend Gregory, played by James Remar. Burns mistakenly compels the police to interrogate a waiter, Skip Lee, who is intimidated and beaten to coerce a confession before the police discover Skip's fingerprints don't match the killers. Burns is disturbed by this police brutality and tells Captain Edelson that he didn't sign on for this so that anyone can be arrested just because they're gay. Exhausted by his undercover assignment, Burns is close to quitting but is convinced by Edelson to continue with the investigation. Following a new lead, Burns investigates students at Columbia University who studied with one of the previous victims, a college professor. At the film's conclusion, Burns thinks that he has found the serial killer, who turns out to be Stuart Richards, played by Richard Cox. Really? <laughs> a gay music graduate student with schizophrenic disorder who attacks him with a knife in Morningside Park. Burns brings the man into custody, but shortly afterward, Ted, his friendly neighbor's mutilated body is found in his apartment. The police dismiss the murder as a lover's quarrel turned violent and put out an arrest warrant for Gregory, his boyfriend, with whom Burns earlier had a fight over with his relationship with Ted. With the police under the impression the murders have been solved because Richards is in custody, Burns moves back in with Nancy. In an ambiguous finale, Burns begins shaving his beard in the bathroom while Nancy secretly inspects clothes that he had left on a chair a leather-peaked cap, aviator frames, and a leather jacket that all look very similar to the outfit the killer wore. Burns, meanwhile, wipes off his shaving cream and looks directly at himself in the mirror. The end. So while I was, uh, 
I don't want to say disappointed by Stranger by the Lake. I was actually pleasantly surprised by Cruising when I first watched it, which was literally just like a couple days ago. And I, I first saw Cruising when I was about 21 years old while I was working at Blockbuster, right? And then another employee who also likes horror movies was like, have you seen this movie? It's a gay horror movie. Yeah. And then like someone was walking around Texas Frightmare with a Cruising shirt, like a couple yeah. people, I think. And so I was just like, huh, this is a thing. I immediately liked so. Cruising when I saw it the first time. Um, and I watched it subsequently many times after that. But it, it has been about... Close to 15 years since I've seen this movie, I think. What was interesting about my initial reaction to this film, which is before I watched it, I'm talking about when I heard about it Uh and I heard it talked about, was kind of an initial reaction to the people in New York had, or at least the the gay community or some of the gay community in New York had uh, when this was getting ready to be filmed and was filming, which was you hear what it's about you know, and you know the time period it's in and you know, like what's in it. And you really just know that it's going to be like anti-gay, mm-hmm. you know, that it's going to portray gays in, in a bad light, especially in like 1980. This is like the dawn of the Reagan revolution. Exactly. The Christian right. And let's face it, the gays knew in New York in the leather S&M culture that this was not going to be viewed well by the public. And, it, you know, they were just 11 years out, out of Stonewall, right? Out of the Stonewall riots. And so things were kind of moving forward. Um, even in this film, even after all of the protests, like this film had to be completely redone uh, as far as audio and redubbed because there were so many protests, people banging trash cans and honking horns and blowing whistles and chanting um, everywhere they were filming, every chance they got. And at one point, I think one night there was an organization and there was like um, a protest and there was about a thousand people. Oh, they marched uh, from like a the West Village into like Sheridan Square or something, and yeah. they all sat down and blocked traffic and everything. And something like a hundred cops had to come and like break it up. Yeah, one cop right? was like kicked in the balls, and yeah. yeah. So it was a big thing, and of course, it was widely panned uh, when it was released. But the reviews have kind of softened over the years. Instead of like zero percent, it's now at like a fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. What's the audience score? It's like in the forties, I think. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, the Rotten Tomatoes score is fifty-one percent with absolutely no consensus. Like they didn't even they don't even have a consensus on Rotten Tomatoes for this. That's crazy. Yeah, but um, it, like I said, like it, back in the day, it was universally panned. It was highly negative. A lot having to do with I think uh, the organized protesting that was happening, mm-hmm. right? But what's interesting about this film, and I think part of the reasons why it has been viewed more positively over the years is because it's a really cool, maybe cool is not the right word, but snapshot, you know, time capsule of this time right before the AIDS crisis. One thing I was really surprised about, there was really no moral judgment of the film on gays at all, really, at least overtly. And uh, certainly they're actually defended several times in the script. Right. Like uh, even Burns says, like, I didn't sign up for this to just bash against gay people. Yeah. But he's he's one of the few cops in the movie that don't seem to actively want to discriminate against some of these people just because there's an uh, an unwrapped up plot thread that's actually not in our synopsis that was never kind of tied up. And that was like a couple of um, I want to say trans. Yeah, Um, they were certainly trans or at least I mean, they were. 
and drag. But they had a problem with the police and it actually shows the police as the bad guys in the situation. It's not trying to show the gay people as deserving it or anything. It's no. it's showing the bad guys as the police. Mm-hmm. That's part of why I'm saying like it's interesting to watch this film, you know, in this light because it's not really making a, a moral judgment. And it, even when they really could have at this time in history about like the S&M culture, maybe they're trying to do visual storytelling. Maybe we're just viewing this film at a different lens since it's now 2019 versus 1980 because maybe it was just overt and obvious seeing all that uh, quote unquote debauchery, you know, going on in these bars and stuff because this film is explicit, right? It has a lot of, or it eludes that a lot of stuff is going on in these bars, including like anal sex and fisting and blowjobs and everything else like is going on. And you kind of, it eludes that you kind of half hide things going on like that, but there's a lot of bare asses and jockstrap just walking around and people making out. A lot of it is not even hidden. I mean, that, that fisting scene that we're talking yeah. about that happens right in the middle of a bar. Right? I can't even imagine scenes it's like well that lit. in a film today. And, yeah, right? I mean, so I mean, like, if you were in a bar and they were just filming, right? And I know that Friedkin, when he made this movie, he wanted like regular bar patrons to come in, and so he would go to a couple bars and scout locations through like connections in the mafia or something like that. And he would ask these people just to act like you normally would if you're at this bar. Right. And so theoretically some of these sex scenes are not simulated or the people are acting the way they would at a particular bar. And eventually he would have to tone this film down quite a bit. The film was made for, uh, Eleven million dollars with a box office of about twenty million. So I don't know. Maybe that's a wash, based on marketing. Yeah, costs I or mean, something. I guess. Yeah, I think so. Um, <clears throat> I find I think that for for the movie being protested so much during its filming, I'm kind of surprised that it made this much money. But I mean, even negative press is good press, right? So yeah. I'm sure a lot of people just went out to see it because everyone was so up in arms about it. The film was actually banned in several countries, including Finland, South Africa, and of course, Iran. Yeah, of course it would be Iran. And there was some real world aftermath uh, because one of the questions we have to ask when we see films like this is, you know, are people that aren't in the gay community going to think this is what all gay people are, for better or worse, right? right? Uh, So one police officer actually shot up the bar, the ramrod that's in the film, within two months after the film was released, saying that he'd kill them all, that the gays ruin everything. He was deemed insane and lived out to his 70s in a mental hospital. So I don't know if that's justice, but no, doesn't sound like it. Not at all. But yeah, a lot of people did think that this was the gay community. Like this was their first real exposure to it, despite the theoretical disclaimer that was theoretically. It wasn't there in the in the copy that I saw, but theoretically it was there in the theater. It has since been removed for yeah. DVD releases. And um, a line in the film stating that there was a, a subculture of the gay community and possible embellishment on the sub- subculture, despite real world extras supposedly being told to tone down the sexual activity, like you said before. I do on this movie on VHS. Because I, when I worked at that blockbuster, I just sold it to myself because I wanted to have it, and uh, I mean the the disclaimer is still on the front of that one. So, yeah, I haven't yeah. seen it, but it's, theoretically it reads: This film is not intended as an indictment of the homosexual world. It is set in one small segment of that world, which is not meant to be representative of the whole. So that's interesting that the film before it ran had that in theaters in 1980. Well, so Friedkin showed this movie before it was released to a journalist from the village voice, which is the first publication to sort of get the word out about what was going on in the production of this movie and letting people, you know, gay citizens of New York know that this movie could potentially be very dangerous for their community and to protest and do what they can to stop 
the filming. And so when he showed it to a journalist, he suggested a few cuts to the movie, which I think Friedkin did. And he also suggested the disclaimer get put on there. Yeah. So this was a gay journalist and Friedkin followed his advice. See, I've heard stories that it wasn't him that suggested to put on there, but it was the studio. The studio or the MPA, you know, MPAA. I've heard, I've heard all those things too, but I, yeah. I mean, I kind of like that story the best that it, I mean, I want to believe that he reached out to somebody in like gay journalism and sought, I would like to say their blessing or whatever, at least to say, Hey, you know, if I've done something wrong, how do I make it right? Yeah. Do you feel like the title is a play on words? I know people have said that before because it's like, you know, cruising itself as a part of, you know, gay subculture. And then the movie is itself a crime drama and it's about what cops do. Yeah. Right. Cruising can describe police officers on patrol and gay men who are cruising for sex. Right. And sometimes it can describe cops who are cruising for sex. I mean, because those those two cops at the very start of this movie bring those two, you know, gay prostitutes into their car and sexually harass them. And we and we know because one of those prostitutes later goes to Captain Edelson and says, you know, he made me suck his dick in the front of that car. Right. Yeah. And she is giving them information on multiple crimes. Right. She says something like, you need me just as much as I need you. And she asks a personal favor of him to find these two cops. She doesn't know their names, but she knows the night that they're working. She knows what precinct they're in. And he dismisses her like quickly. He was just like, until you can give me a name or a badge number, don't come back here saying bad things about cops, blah, blah, blah. You know, and well, part of his reasoning was like he was telling her that for every cop, there's two people in the city that are, you know, pretending to be cops. And at first hearing that sort of thing, at least on this particular rewatch, I was just like, well, that seems like bullshit and then later on in the movie we get to go to this bar called precinct nine or something like that where everybody is dressed up as cops like and legit was, like yeah it looks like and you it looks real i thought i saw a couple of the real cops that were assholes in there too there is one that cop shows up so many times like in this movie. wolf in sheep's clothing he is like he cruises al pacino a lot like he's uh, because there's lots of shots in this movie of al pacino's pov as the guys start looking at him right yeah and that one particular cop who shows up at the beginning and the end of this movie is cruising people at these bars too. And they all, they did mention like who owns all these bars, right? They kind of briefly like, you can't touch him. You don't know who that is or whatever. Mm-hmm. And turns out like actually Friedkin actually did a huge amount of research outside of the book and all the stories that the book was based off of the real world crimes and, and stories about this. Mm-hmm. But he actually talked and worked with members from the mafia who at the time owned many of the city's gay bars. And that's that's true. And, and they, I mean, they owned a lot of on. gay establishments way before even this time period. So when back before Stonewall, when bars would get raided and busted by the police, even the mafia still owned them at that point. I yeah. think it was fairly common practice. I like how you bring up the fact that this is sort of like based on real world events. I mean, obviously, the movie itself is based on a novel. Um, which came out like 10 years before the movie does. Mm-hmm. Um, and Friedkin was approached at one point to direct this movie and he turned it down. Yeah. But it wasn't until a serial killer in the late seventies was sort of stalking gay men, especially in leather bars. Uh, when he actually saw it in the paper for himself. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's what sort of led him to revisit and eventually write and direct the movie. Right. And as a funny coincidence, the man who was accused of these crimes, but only convicted of one 
was an extra in one of Friedkin's earlier movies, The Exorcist. Yikes. He plays um, some sort of like technician who administers a test on Reagan while she's in the hospital. So, I mean, it's just a little fun fact that, you know, there's a, a, a maybe serial killer in the background of The Exorcist. So, yeah. yeah. What did you think of uh, Al Pacino in this film? <sighs> you know, I anytime I see Al Pacino in movies, I'm usually on the fence. Like, he's just not my favorite actor, really. Yeah. Um, he, I mean, mostly because I think he looks a little weird. But um, he was actually not Friedkin's first choice for the lead. Richard Gere was. I have read that, and I would have loved to have seen Richard Gere in this movie. And he had expressed a strong interest for the part. Uh, and Friedkin had opened up negotiations with Gere's agent, but uh, and, and he was the choice because he believed that Gere could bring in an androgynous quality to the role that Pacino couldn't because he was supposed to be in his 20s, not 39. Exactly. Al Pacino was 39 yeah. when he played this. And I was like, isn't he, aren't you a little old to be in your 20s or something? And he looks at, you know, he looks like yeah. he's in his mid to late 30s. So, I mean, I, I don't really buy that. Karen Allen looks so much younger than him in this movie, you know? Yeah. And theoretically, As- Robert De Niro and Roy <laughs> Scheider actually turned down the role of Steve Roy Scheider? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me cough. Yeah. Speaking of all of the uh, explicit material in this film that I was shocked to see for like a 1980 film, but there was like a lot of hard boiled like thrillers around this time that actually showed a lot. And I think that didn't get really picked back up really until maybe like Silence of the Lambs again, probably like in you know the early 90s or something. Showed a lot of what? I'm sorry. Just like a lot of like dark, gritty you know, actually willing to show things that other films were not willing to show. Yeah. I know around this time period, there was, um, there's a handful of directors who made movies that were considered to be very gritty or realistic, right? People like Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, which I mean, his movies are not that realistic to me, but they were sort of all grouped together in the same school of film filmmaking. Yeah. And I think that cruising is a really good example of that. Um, as far as like Friedkin's other work, I would say like the French connection sort of right. But if you're talking about like gritty realism or like noir cinema or something like that, I think cruising would be the first choice of his oeuvre to choose for that. Well, the MPA originally gave cruising an X rating. Yeah. And, uh, Freakin claims that he took the the film before the MPA like 50 times with a cost of at least $50,000 and deleted 40 minutes of footage from the original cut before he secured an R rating. Now, of course, there's a full documentary by James Franco about this and what are those 40 minutes? Yeah. And Freakin has actually been open about like uh, it was just basically pornography. It was basically mm-hmm. just more bar shots and you know not really more story, which was what people assume because the end is kind of messy to a lot of people. But before we get to the end, we have a, a couple more things that we need to talk about. There's a lot of weird moments in this movie. Oh, my God. Yes, it's bizarre, even, at times. Yeah, like, I love Powers Booth. <laughs> like, near the beginning, he's just starting <laughs> to learn about, like, uh, Burns, played by Al Pacino, as, of just learning how to, like, play his role, right? So he sees everyone with these handkerchiefs in their back pockets and stuff. And so he goes to, like, the local store or whatever and powers booth of all people if you don't know who he was he was in tombstone was like the main bad guy or whatever Mm -hmm. and um i don't know what else he's been in but i can't remember he's a very iconic kind of face anyway so he was actually like the the guy at the register and he was (laughs) telling 
he was telling Al Pacino about all of the codes for the, hanky code, the hankies yeah. and it was telling him about the yellow ones for like, you know, if you like to get peed on and like yeah. all this stuff. And then, you know, he was telling him all the others and he's like, you'll make the right choice. And I'm like, now I've seen everything. Powers Booth is explaining the gay handkerchief code to Al Pacino. And it's so funny when like you, you sort of get the idea that Burns really doesn't understand the world that he's in. I know that some people like to conjecture whether or not he was bisexual or gay before he entered this particular world. And I mean, you can sort of kind of guess that when he's talking to Captain Edelson at the beginning and he's like, very had your cock sucked by a man? And he's like, huh, 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 and like stammering over his words, right? Mm-hmm. And you get the impression he's like, well, maybe he just doesn't want to admit to something. But when he buys that handkerchief, the yellow handkerchief, and puts it in his back pocket and the guy walks up to him in the bar and he's like, do you like golden showers or you water, like water sports? sports. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, I just like to watch. And he, the guy gets pissed off, you know, and right. rightfully so, because, you know, he's advertising something he's not willing to do. Yeah. And I'm like, why? Out of everything like, in that, that store, yeah. did you pick the yellow one? I was like, he's why? Like, I guess he wanted to dive right in. He's like, oh, gold. <laughs> I like gold. It's opulent or whatever. I took a shower today. I love it was, showers. It was oh explained to him what that was. Like, why? Are you doing that? It looks, it's like the worst one. So I mean, it was just—it's funny to me at that particular moment. And I—I I mean, like, does that? Do people still do that? But it was also he gets roughed up a couple times during this film by gay guys, and I think that's part of the reason why we see this character trying to like kind of overmasculinize himself. Not just because this community of the or the subset of the gay community is a little bit more masculine, or like almost like extreme, like weird, toxic in a way, yeah, masculine or it can be. Um, but he like tries to overmasculinize himself. He's like lifting weights in the mirror and he starts like screaming. Yeah. Like I'm like that's the Al Pacino <laughs> scream I was waiting for. Too bad it's for such a douchey reason as screaming while you're lifting weights in the mirror. In the mirror, yeah. And then of course, yeah, he he gets kicked out of a bar by some guy. He gets called an asshole by another. So he's feeling kind of emasculated a little bit, and he didn't expect to feel that way around a bunch of gay guys I'm sure right Mm -hmm. and so he's like trying to and he goes back and tries to have sex with his girlfriend of course he can't tell Karen Allen his girlfriend um, what he's doing it's all a secret he's undercover right so he can't say anything but he's being super like aggressive and masculine towards her rough rough sex yeah and you know so he's trying to do this and of course that's an interesting psychological component and I feel like while that I don't think it's a judgment I think it's kind of a judgment on this character because I feel like a lot of straight guys would probably do that and react that way I will say, too, that I've seen other gay horror movies, um, namely like Hellbent, uh, that have – they sort of portray a gay cast in a very, very masculine way, like overly masculine, right? And that's really just not the gay world that I live in. I mean, not all gay men are in this mask for masks. Well, that was interesting because Strangers by the Lake, I felt like, had that that problem a little bit. Not that I noticed that. I just read it later and I was like, oh, that's that was true. Like yeah. it wasn't over with Strangers by the Lake, but almost everyone was masculine. And this, there's a lot of overly overtly masculine gay characters. However, there also are the more effeminate ones too. Exactly. So there's kind of an even mix, a little bit. Not really even, but well, I mean, I like a mix. as a gay man, I like to see these two trans characters at the start of the movie, and then that one trans character popping up throughout, right? And when he or she shows up at the police station. There's in full makeup, you know, she's got a full beat face. And uh, I mean, I found that a little refreshing in a movie that can mix, you know, some femininity and masculinity together when it comes to the gay community and not have mm-hmm. to just say, you know, all, all these guys are just trying to act super, super masculine. However, I think that Friedkin put that in for the wrong reasons. I think that he put a man in makeup dressed in leather in the daytime police station to sort of shock straight audiences. You know what I mean? And from that sort of thing, I, I mean, I get that kind of impression that this is why people could have been angry or how the film could have been taken 
wrong. So that's another thing is that it, the the moral judgment that this film is making is quite specific, right? So he fingers the wrong. Well, let me rephrase that. He <laughs> he uh, he fits the wrong guy. He. He basically puts forth the wrong person who has been seen as being kind of aggressive, kind of mean, you know, to other guys or at least, right. you know, just kind of uh, flies off the handle, has a shorter tether than the other guys. And so he uh, he basically says to the cops, like, I think I found your guy. So they bring this guy and this poor kid and he's interrogated and then they bring in this giant black man in a chalk strap to to hit him as like the bad cop or something and like what where did this come from i know the movie just takes this like strange 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 turns like everywhere i mean he makes weird artistic decisions like as a director and or he wrote it too as a screenwriter and so i'm i've seen this movie and i'm always puzzled by that but uh we were watching it with chris's boyfriend and we were Mm -hmm. talking about why in the world that would even happen and he so he Googled it and apparently police would do outlandish things like this right. so that if they said, oh, the cops brought out this big black man in a jockstrap and a cowboy hat, the judge would be like, uh, you're lying and yep. you're stupid. There's no way that could possibly happen. You yeah. know what I mean? But when in actuality, in real life, these practices did, you know? Yep. We had touched on earlier as to whether or not Burns is either starting to accept a homosexual side of him or is bisexual already. And right before they bring in that wrongly fingered man, Skip, the police break in to break up some sort of sexual activity that's going on between Skip and Burns, right? So they break into the apartment and Burns is tied up on the bed. Because they're trying to frame, or they're trying to see if the guy has a knife and then if, what he's going right. to do. They, and Burns was answering the his yeah. radio call. It's right? a sting. Like, basically. So... Whenever the cops came in, the first thing that Burns says to them is, what are you doing? What are you doing? Right? Like, he wasn't expecting them to come in at that particular point. Yeah. Do you think that he would have had, like, penetrative sex with him? Well, it was funny because I thought that was going to happen. Yeah. Because they couldn't hear what was going on, which is why they went in, because they couldn't. It was all just radio breaking up. Meanwhile, Al Pacino's getting tied up because he's asking the guy to. He's basically forcing the guy to tie him up to to force the situation to happen. And I'm like, come on. This is obviously not the guy. He's like, what do you want? This is... I'm not into this. I don't want to tie you up. Yep. <laughs> and he's like making the guy do that. Tie me up, you know, to, to kind of force the situation. And I'm like, the radio is going to go dark. And then like some wacky hijinks is going to happen. <laughs> like, I just know that it's going to go in there and uh, Al Pacino is going to look like a different man. But no, that didn't happen because of course, as soon as it goes dark, they can't understand what's happening. They decide they to just go right for in. it, yeah. you know, to save the guy. But it was probably the right thing to do, but still I wanted my wacky hijinks. But you know, the guy actually, that's when they bring him in and that's all when they basically abuse this dude and hit him and interrogate mm-hmm. him and they say like we're gonna make you do the floating ball test Jesus and you're gonna take the floating ball test what's that you're gonna fill that sink with water and we're gonna dip your balls in it and if they don't float you're our main man you know, meanwhile, finally, when they find the real killer at the end of the film, he's like in this nice hospital room where they're talking calmly to him. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I didn't kill anybody. It's place. like, really? Like, I want the floating ball test on this dude because he has a mullet and he deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that mullet looked too bad on him, though. I mean, like when he's out of his leather getup, when he's in his non-serial killer clothes, right? He just looks ridiculous but Mm -hmm. the minute he's got those aviators on right and he's got that 80s mullet working for him i mean i kind of find it sexy so (laughs) i mean i probably wouldn't go home with him because he seems like somebody who would kill me but 
Yeah, let's talk about these killings a little bit because I, I did notice that he's actually not hunting so much as he's fishing. Okay. He's going out to these things and he's waiting for someone to approach him, you know, to go have a hookup. And he's actually, at least in the first victim, he's actually having sex with the person and then killing them. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I think we're led to believe that but they, every, they had sex and then. But every killing is different. One's in the park. One's after sex. Mm-hmm. You know, one's actually been dismembered and thrown into the ocean. You know, so it's like. And then one's in that theater that one's in the theater and it's besides all being done with some sort of sharp object it's alluded that it could be different killers even though they, they all have the same costume get up on but of course they're also showing al pacino's character burns wearing the exact same outfit sans hat that's right and aviators through, the, basically entire through the entire movie so it's it's and of course it ends ambiguously because he finally finds that college student and i'm just like there's some issues like that's where the film kind of starts to I don't know if I want to say fall apart, but it gets messy, right? Because he finally, like, he's handed from his boss, like, this, he's not getting any leads, right? He f- he fingered the wrong person to begin with, right? Well, he's doing a pretty he's bad not getting job anywhere. as an undercover cop. He's, he's, going, he's doing a bad job. He's not really <coughs> doing anything or, you know, finding anything out. Meanwhile, his boss hands him this college sheet that said, oh, here's a dossier of the, of the, you know, the men that had this college professor or whatever. Right, it's like a yearbook. He's like the check marks of the people. And it's funny student. because it ends up being true that's how he finds the killer i'm like wait you didn't need to go undercover at all they could have just investigated this one dude but i don't know that would make a really boring movie he breaks into his apartment you know to to find out if it's the killer which that's not a thing you're supposed to do as a cop and then uh he goes through his personal letters or whatever and then the guy comes home and he escapes to across the street so he can watch him again and he realizes that his house has been broken into his his personal letters to his dead father have been read he looks out the window and there's al pacino smiling so i'm thinking oh he's telling him i'm a cop i just found you out you know cuz it's all over the paper you know the homo killer whatever mm-hmm. they're calling it yeah, which is the homo kind of, killer gay yeah. killer and then the gay killer and the homo killer and they kind of you know match glances and it's like, oh, it's like the cops are about to pull up. He's just trying to get him like it was me. I found out. You, I found you out. But no, apparently it was something completely different. And he just thought the guy was stalking him to have sex. Yeah, he's cruising him because so they the killer had noticed Al Pacino at bars a couple times in the movie. Right. And then toward the end of the movie, he seems to notice Al Pacino looking at him all the time outside his apartment on the bus, you know, yeah. everywhere. And then right when they have that, you know, last scene together when they're at the park sitting on those benches, like the guy walks out of his apartment, Al Pacino sort of way up already in the like the upper levels of the park. Yeah. And they go meet and have a very awkward exchange. Yeah, and to where he's actually mentions the nursery rhyme to him that the killer is supposed to have said while he's murdering these people. Right. And he just he the killer just responds with how clever. You know, not like a tip off of that he knows what he's doing or that clever he's a cop. Girl. Like it doesn't make sense to me, but it's almost in a way like a stranger by the lakes kind of situation where, "Hey, I know what you've done and I don't care. I'm complicit. Mm-hmm. I know your details, I know your letters, I've broken into your house. I want I still want to have sex with you i know what you've done i'm telling you your like mantra your killing mantra nursery rhyme right. stupid fuck and uh you know and then the guys oh how clever and then they you know he goes you know they just go for it and he's just like you know pull down your pants i want to see the world how big are you party size it's like yeah this dialogue i know for see, real though how big are you party size what are you into i go anywhere i don't do anything that's cool hips or lips I'm going to start using that the next time. I mean, I go to gay bars <laughs> about three times a year anyway, so I'm just going to meet somebody and be like, hips or lips? 
Yeah. <laughs> Hips or lips. <laughs> yeah. And party. It, <laughs> what size are you? Party size. Yes. And that's little, isn't it? Lis- listeners, please let us know what is party size? Does that mean large or does that mean small? Because when I think party size, I always think like the little tiny treats you give out to trick or treaters at Halloween, right? It's a party size candy bar, yeah. right? But I mean, in the gay context, if you're like, it's party size, I mean, and what gay man doesn't like a party? I think it's a really big dick or something. <laughs> or yeah, like a sex party, maybe? Is that what they're, maybe? I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah. I was like, we're so, how we're big so are you? Innocent and vanilla, really, compared to the people on this. I know. Here we are, like talking about two movies that have to deal with cruising, and we're like, "What do you think it means?" (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, we need some more experience. What is cruising? (laughs) I know. I going back to about him sort of slipping further into this life. We we start to realize that he is sort of letting himself go and become a part of the community that he's in. We see it through his friendship with Ted and the fact that he's willing to have a fight with he's his boyfriend. He's very sweet and soft-spoken with Ted. Exactly. And then he's very over-masculine and stuff in other parts, just like he's trying to, like, he's seesawing back and forth between like fully accepting himself in this community and having contacts back to, the, and that leads to that some of that ambiguity of the end where it's like, did he kill that person, his friend? Because it was his friend that was dead at the end right. while the killer is in the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. So theoretically, this happened after the killer was already caught. So was it a lover's quarrel because he did fight with the with his friend's boyfriend, you know, their neighbors to, to kind of defend him, and then, uh, but it's it's uh, that guy that's killed his friend. Ted. It was alluded that it could have been that lover's quarrel. Or it could have been Burns. It could have been Al Pacino's character killing the last little bit of himself that was gay to exit. Yeah. And kind so of taking on the killer's mantle a little bit. I kind of like the darker side of that ambiguous ending. I just don't I don't I don't think that's accurate though. I really think that I mean if his boyfriend James Remar was There's literally no consensus and Friedkin yeah. won't tell us. Well yeah, he said he does he also says that the killer was heterosexual in like our uh, interviews he's given about this movie. So I mean I'm not even sure that William Friedkin knows anything that's going on in his own movie. Yeah, did he even direct this? I know. I mean like Who's in charge? He just <laughs> was like he just wrote some words down on a piece of paper and like let's let's do this. Yeah. So but yeah I mean I, I like the darker ending just because I, I like endings like that I just don't think that's you know accurate I really think that Ted was killed by his boyfriend because we see the knife that he was killed and earlier in a couple scenes he was threatening Al Pacino with that knife yeah but it would have been was, so right? easy for him to use that knife he knows yeah, he has it's already there yeah it already had his fingerprints on and it's almost like two birds with one stone in that sense because he can kill the part of him that's gay that still has a connection to gay life and then he can also kill that guy he fucking hates which is the guy's boyfriend or or frame him for murder so it's like two birds with one stone and he can he knows he can get away with it and then of course he took that hat from the killer mm-hmm. as part of and they, probably the aviators too as part of his costume and took it home with him. And so that it, it really does elude that he took on that mantle and that it changed him. And I don't know what moral judgment that is, if any, but it's so ambiguous and nebulous that I, I don't know. It's uh, it's thought provoking at the very least. And I sort of I mean, I like to think that Al Pacino's character Burns sort of got so immersed in this particular community that he feels a part of it, maybe, and will be revisiting it, even though he's not undercover anymore yeah that's he sort obviously of why he kept, kept to get these up. things yeah. yeah and so he plans on going back to these bars and possibly still cruising men while there and so i mean the ending is incredibly ambiguous yeah i mean everyone's gonna draw their own conclusions and i you know 
I think for every person who watches it, just like any person who watches any movie, they're going to take away what they take away from it. Everything is subjective. So, and if you have an ending that's not as clear cut like it is in the book, I mean, the book doesn't, you know, mince any words and says that he becomes the killer at the end of it. So, listeners, let us know what you think the ending means. Please. Yeah, because we want to know. <laughs> Also, can we mention again about living our best life in psychological thrillers? Yeah. Because Karen Allen's apartment is everything. That's right. I mean, every time we're watching like a crime thriller like this, someone's got some sort of fantabulous apartment like Sigourney fucking Weaver. Yeah. So, and I think I'd still rather Sigourney Weaver's uh, apartment from Because she's got the the more recent She's got technology. Yeah. Yeah. Karen Allen's got that antique sewing machine and the record player. That's it. But I mean, the amount I used to live in New York. Yeah, but it was like wall to wall windows all right. the way around, wrapping around the whole apartment. It was a huge apartment with lots of natural light. And I was just like, how in the world? When I lived in New York, my closet was in the living room. It was just like, I don't know. maybe they so... live in New Jersey or something. I don't know. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they have a nice view of the Staten Island or something. I don't know. That's also bad, too. Oh, yeah. I miss New York. Just not enough to go back and get stabbed to death. So there are a lot of tropes, same as uh, Stranger by the Lake, that may or may not be subverted or averted, right? Uh, Because it's, of course, this film is about certain things, right? Purposefully. So, like, let's say one of them, we'll start with all gays are promiscuous. This is somewhat averted by being highly contextual, obviously. Right. I mean, the movie's called Cruising. It's about sex. It's about this specific subset of gay men, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And depraved homosexual. This is somewhat averted, depending on how you analyze the film, right? Though the film shows lots of kinky public sex, those kinky characters are implied to have normal jobs and regular lives outside of their fetishes, like being a waiter or a tech support, right? Uh, Or a playwright or a college student. Or a cop. Yeah. The killer is a depraved homosexual, but this is not treated as a typical feature of homosexuality. Right. So like I say, it keeps coming back to that non-moral judgment, which is is nice. Uh, Jim Bunny Many gay men are shown either working out a lot or just displaying their perfect bodies. Burns begins to work out, obviously, like we mentioned earlier, to fit in better. Well, and I know this is a it may be a trope in movies, but isn't this kind of a trope in real life too? Not I really. Mean, like in the leather scene and stuff, there are bears and stuff. Yeah, right? there are lots but of bears. But we didn't see any kind of bear happening there. No, no, not in this movie. But of course a lot of people were thinner back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's just like stick thin in these movies in the seventies and eighties. And all the hair's curly. Yeah. It's so weird. Uh, and then, of course, bury your gaze. Every person killed in this film is gay. But, of course, it might be averted by the context yet again. Yeah, because all the characters are supposed to be because gay. Because it's about that, right? It's about a, a serial killer who kills gay people. And I think that we made a lot of these same concessions. We were talking about the tropes in Stranger by the Lake, right? I mean... Yeah, there's some connections there, but it's, it's in- interesting because that was the point we made for Stranger by the Lake was it has these tropes, but because it's about a certain thing, it kind of gets a pass, right? It's not right. like about the other thing, but then it shows these stereotypes. No, it happens to be about this thing that actually the stereotypes maybe c- could stem from. Right. So that's the thing. Or it also leads to a conversation about the quote unquote responsibility of filmmakers or creators in general to keep in mind what people outside of these communities think of the gay community overall. Right. Mm -hmm. Because this might be someone's only experience with gay people. They might think, oh, I saw cruising. That's what gay people are like. That's what all gay people are like for better or worse. Right. Exactly. And they do have to their credit. They do have that, uh, 
you know, description, you know, before the film that kind of warns people that this is not something that you need to like think that every single gay person does. Right. They're not all, you know, fisting at a bar, <laughs> I guess. I, I like to think that maybe, I mean, obviously nowadays I think people would see a movie like this and you won't, you don't need the disclaimer because they know that it's not true. I mean, like leather community still exists, S&M community still exists, you know, in the LGBT family. But um, I think that a, a modern day viewer could watch Cruising and not have to have someone tell them, now this isn't about all gay people. This is just about some of them, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's certainly not any sort of disclaimer on Stranger by the Lake, right? How do you feel that these two movies deal with Cruising in their own way? You think it's similar or different? Uh, I would say that, of course, this the 2013, I guess, uh, was when it was filmed. 2014 was when it came out. Strangers by the Lake. Yeah. Stranger by the Lake, I should say. Deals with it a little bit more incidentally, like organically, I would say. Just like it's very matter of fact versus, you know, it's not about a stranger in a strange world, right? It's not a fish out of water story like cruising is, mm-hmm. right? So it deals with it a little bit more naturally and organically and easily, yeah, because everybody who's involved in the cruising and Stranger by the Lake actively wants to do it. That's what they are there for. Like nobody yeah. is, you know, experiencing something that they don't want to experience with the exception of maybe Henri, his friend. But he seems to not mind being around it so much. Right? Versus it does show in cruising a wider view of the culture, mm-hmm. uh, not only just the subset of the leather and S&M culture, but that a lot of people aren't just there for sex. They're there to be with friends yeah. and their community, to dance, to drink. Have you a know, good time. To have a good time. some poppers and just have a night. Watch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Read some nursery rhymes. Whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, and the same thing can be said about Stranger by the Lake, too. Because like every time that Frank walks up to the lake, he sees his friend, his acquaintances, and they have the, you know, the European double cheek kiss or whatever. Yeah. And so, I mean, like, they also make friends there and they do things like go to happy hour and go to dinner it's not just you know being naked around a lake or you're like having sex in the woods yeah. right um there's like stark contrast between the depictions of gay sex in both these movies right cruising is very dark everything happens at night it's very moody and yeah. there's emotion and things like that so to me it's the the better film as far as uh, of course the vast vast majority will disagree to me it's more entertaining film like it's more of a journey because it's a more of a character journey I guess. But I mean, we could go back and forth and in circles on that all day. Right. Uh, because I would say that they're completely two different films that happen to be kind of about similar subject matter and handle it in a, in a few different parallels along the way. Yeah. I mean, they're both movies that deal with cruising and deal with death. Yeah. Centered around cruising. Right. And so, I mean, like just basic plot lines are really what makes these movies so similar. Um, I will say that I feel that Stranger by the Lake celebrates gay sex a little bit more than cruising does. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that it does. I feel it felt like it was very neutral. It's very matter of fact, which I thought it was that to me, that's a really high praise. It's not going out of its way you know, to say, this is, this is great. This is okay. This is wonderful. You know, it's, it's saying this is happening because it's normal. Right. Or because it's natural. And that's something that strangers by the lake did much better than cruising. I think that too. I mean, I'm, I'm happy that a movie like cruising can come out in 1980 and show the things that it did. I think it's, it's very brave. Just like I think that the boundaries that Gekhodi pushes in stranger by the lake are, 
similarly brave and it should be applauded. Oh, sure. I mean, I think that if you look at the trajectory from cruising to now, right, we've made so much ground in gay cinema. And right after all the backlash of cruising in 1980, we had a whole string of movies that had like gay and lesbian relationships in it. Things like Making Love or Personal Best, right? Mm -hmm. And we're talking like this is as close as like 83 or 84 after it. And these movies were considered to be very brave and bold for their time period. Yeah. Right. And so, um, we keep making more progress until the AIDS crisis hits, right? And then every single movie yeah. we get is about AIDS it, and sadness and what death. What I thought was so interesting about this from another point of view as far as a time capsule, right? Because it takes place in 1980, like I said, right as the Reagan revolution's happening and mm-hmm. everything else and the culture's changing, the zeitgeist is there, right? It's all happening. But this is before the AIDS crisis, which is just a bomb, on not only the gay population, but on gay politics and any kind of progress and forward movement. Because there was. There was Stonewall, and you could see how, quote-unquote, ballsy they had gotten (laughs) in these bars, you know, and everything else. I was just so shocked, actually, to see all of that, because I've never been to a bar like that where they're just doing all kinds of stuff. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not saying that I haven't been to bars where things do that. I just didn't actually see it. Yeah, 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 right. But, like, all progress had been halted, essentially, for more than a decade because of that. So it wasn't just a moral argument against gays anymore. It was a health and safety argument where people were calling them dirty and diseased and everything else, the gay cancer. And so it was just, it's interesting to see the attitudes and everything and how they were changing. Even in 1980, it was like, oh my gosh, this could have been like a couple years ago or something as far as how this film is treating this. But then if this film had been made just five years later, I'm sure it would have different things to say based on the panic that was happening. It would have a completely different tone to the movie. Yeah. And I mean, I know that we talked about trying to decipher when Stranger by the Lake takes place. And we had decided, you know, late 80s, early 90s, Uh which is squarely like toward, you know, the AIDS epidemic, we had started to learn how to control it. There was medicine and things like that. And safe sex practices were sort of in place. And we see things in that movie, like two guys going to hook up and they're sort of brushing all the used condoms away. Right. And then one of his tricks or whatever, doesn't want to do anything because there's no condom. But when he's with Michelle, they actively don't use any protection and they, they know exactly because this is, I mean, by then people were aware of what AIDS was. Yeah. Right. And so you have a movie that's before the AIDS crisis that is, you know, showing all this like free gay sex. And then you have a movie where people are fully aware of it and yet not following the responsible precautions. Yeah. So we went right on past that, you know, the whole thing that we grew up with in our twenties, the nineties and early two thousands, which was just, you know, you better protect yourself or you're going to die or something. That's and how I we still up. feel that way. I know that there's many different kinds of drugs and things like that to keep you safe. And we all know how to use a condom. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes people get a little capricious with their activities, maybe. Oh, and sure. Just like, you know, and now with, with prep and everything else, yeah. people are just on prep. And apparently there's a there's a a lot of people out there that aren't prep and just think they're completely protected. And that's why things like syphilis are coming back. That's right. So, I mean, like it it took us a long time in the eighties to get people to talk about HIV and AIDS. And we all learned growing up how to protect ourselves. So please people like follow the rules a little bit. I mean, just take care of yourselves. There's don't let you're taking care of everyone else. Yeah. Don't let all these people who died. It's a social contract. Come on. Social engineering. And I guess I'll get off my high horse for that. (laughs) No, All right, so uh, I think to wrap things up on cruising, as always, we have some questions that the film flamers like to ask about the movie. So, Chris, is cruising a horror movie? Yes. Uh, I would say even compared to – I'd say even compared to Stranger by the Lake, 
I'd say this is even more of a straight up, you know, horror movie. I mean, there's a slasher for God's sake. Yeah, exactly. So, and in fact, even more than even copycat in a way, because Mm -hmm. it's, there is a very much a slasher element to it, a cat and mouse kind of thing going on. And uh, to me, that this was much more horror adjacent than some others that we've seen. I mean, just the look of this movie, the feel of this movie, and the way that some of the murders take place is straight up 80s slasher. Yeah. You know, grindhouse slasher, like Maniac and things like that. You so, made me do it. I mean, down to the damn ki- <laughs> like killer's tagline and shit. I yeah. mean, like, this is a straight up slasher movie. And, I mean, I appreciate that. I still would stick it more into, like, a horror-adjacent area, right? And as of late, we've been talking about a lot of horror-adjacent movies, and I think this squarely fits into it. Yeah, this is definitely under the the larger horror umbrella. Yeah, I completely agree. Were you scared while watching Cruising? Um, I think I was tense a couple times, but I don't think I was ever scared. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was mostly judgy. <laughs> <I> was like, <laughs> that's like big, strong man. You just just because you have a four inch knife, he's just you're just gonna let him tie you up. Like, come on, struggle a little bit. Come yeah, on, man, for real. Just letting himself get hit. Yeah. So I don't know. I was kind of judging some of those scenes a little bit, you know. And you could see things coming from a mile away, mm-hmm. you know, like the park scene. He's like, oh, he disappeared. Where is he? He's gonna come out with an arm, like an arm from nowhere, and stab you in the chest, man. Like, come on, you know, it's gonna happen. It is predictable. And I mean, and maybe we feel that way because we've seen so many horror movies or something, yeah, right? Sure. Like, we've seen all these slashers before. But that's so fair because happens. we're us in this time right now. It's right? true. So right. we've got to say what we I feel. I can't remember if I was frightened the first time that I saw Cruising. I don't think so. I think I was just really more intrigued. The first time I saw yeah. Cruising, I had not been to a leather bar or anything like no, that. Yeah. And I was just like completely I like fascinated by it. They're fun. I mean, yeah. they're not they're not scary. So um, and finally, and some would consider most important, who is the hottest guy in cruising? So I'm going to definitely come out and say we didn't mention his name during the synopsis. Um, Skip. That was incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Skip Lee. Yeah. Skip that. Lee. And he was played by, I think, Joe Avacone. Or something yeah. like that. And of course he went on to play like Kowalski or something and Stargate SG one, like later on, like randomly. He looks completely different. He is like really, really cute. He is really cute. A young whatever he was in his twenties, he was really cute. I think for me, the hottest guy in cruising is a very, very small part. It's the first victim that we see on screen. The oh, guy yeah, who picks him good. up. He's like, I don't I hate cigarettes. I detest cigarettes or no. And he's like, Oh, fat great. I haven't made it with a Martian. You know what I mean? Like that guy. Uh-huh. He's so hot. And when he comes out in his apartment, he's got no shirt. He got on. the diagonal zipper on his little thing. Yes. I was just like, Oh my god. So confident. <laughs> so I, sexy. Why do you come here? I come here to be worshipped and adored because I'm yeah. having ego problems. This dialogue is where <laughs> <laughs> I mean up your pants, show me the world. Like, if what that is... man had walked up to me in a bar and he was just like, I come here to be worshipped in the door because I have an ego problem, I'd be like, well, I can satisfy that. <laughs> so Here's so a hot. card for my therapist. <laughs> I know, yeah. In this particular way, sir. I think we're too snarky to go to these bars. <laughs> Probably. Well, I don't, I mean, like, I wonder if people come talk to us. Uh, Probably not. Sad. That's why we're snarky. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, like, don't talk to those two bitches over there. <laughs> Great. Love it. Well, guys, let us know what you think about the movie Cruising. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it, and I know that the reception of this movie has changed so much since its release, and I think it's really regarded as sort of a cult classic. And I think even a lot of LGBT community members appreciate this movie for what it was and the time period that it was made. This and Stranger by the Lake, because I mean, overall, even with their comparisons and huge gap of time between them, they're both 
overall, relatively speaking, very sex positive. Exactly. And that's things that I like to see in movies that center around gay people, right? Yeah. Um, so tell us on social media what you think of our discussions of both of these movies. If you have any comparisons or contrasts you want to share with us, please do so. And you can do that at the Film Flamers on Twitter and Facebook. And as of now, we are also on Instagram. So look us up on there. And you can also email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com. That's right. And if you're looking for even more Film Flamers content, head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers and check out all of our bonus content there. And this month you can find some sequel ideas to Stranger by the Lake and possibly Cruising, I think. As well, yes. We'll be doing some intros of a scene where we sort of pick some of our favorite or performative scenes in horror and break it down for you. And there could be even more coming soon. So check that out. You can get all of our bonus content for a little as $2. Next is our hot take on the Texas Frightmare convention that we went to, as well as a film that we screened there called 47 Hours. That's right. So if you're intrigued by that, stay tuned. And as always, if you love all of our content, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. And if you feel so compelled, you can call and leave us a voice review or question or comment at what number? 972-666-7733. Well, guys, until next week with our hot take. Sweet dreams. Take down your pants. I want to see the world. (laughs) (laughs) I still like hips or nips better than hips or lips. How big are you? (sighs) I'm from king size, baby. Let's go. (laughs) Party size. (laughs) I'm supposed to say party size. I'm not going to (laughs) lie.